Colossians chapter 2. We've been going through this great book. Uh, What we've been looking at so far is really this picture that Paul wants to emphasize is the larger subject matter of the concept of Jesus as the center of all things. So I'm going to jump in. Before I jump in, I want to pray, ask God's help and blessing and guidance over this, and then we're going to begin to take a look at some really uh, big, lofty concepts, and hopefully we will break them into bite-sized pieces that we can swallow them, and uh, really, more importantly, let them begin to transform and change our hearts and our lives and the way that we live. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. God, right now, we want to ask for your help. Uh, God, left to ourselves, we are broken, we are oftentimes misguided, we emphasize the wrong things, and we de-emphasize the things that ought to be emphasized. So God, we ask that you would just help reset, reconfigure, reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives to see the beauty and the power of Jesus. So God, help us, we pray this morning, to do this. Holy Spirit, Enable us, fall, rest, fresh, guide us, lead us, remove uh, hindrances, roadblocks, just things, God, that just prohibit our ability to learn and grow and love and be transformed. So we invite your presence here, God, to do the work in us and ultimately through us that you choose to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um. I'm going to start off by basically saying, in short, uh, Paul is going to be using some language here that um, is, is big. It's, as I already kind of mentioned or alluded to, it's lofty. It's big concepts, big ideas. Uh, as even in the Greek, it's kind of ongoing running sentences. Uh, we'll read through some of these things, and it'll be like, shouldn't there be a period somewhere? Uh, not in Paul's mind. Paul just is filled. He's just, he's just Holy Spirit-guided, where he just keeps... Uh, unloading all this big, massive stuff and concepts about Jesus. Um, one thing that we will notice about Paul in the passages that we're going to read is that Paul is extremely, here's a big theological word for you because I know that you woke up this morning thinking, I want a big theological word, so you're welcome. Here it is. Paul is extremely uh, Christocentric. All right, Christocentric is just another nice, big, fancy way of saying Christo, meaning Christ, centric, meaning uh, center, Christ centered. Paul is incredibly Christ-centered. I'll give you an example of this. Um, We're not going to read all 15 of these verses because we read the first seven last week. We'll read from verse 8 on today to actually verse 12. But if you were to take verses 1 through 15, all right, 13 times in just those verses, chapter 2 of 15 verses, Paul says 13 different times uh, this phrase, in him or in Christ, uh, with him or through him, he uses that phrase, in him, with him, through him, and every single time it's a reference to Jesus. Paul wants us to understand that Christ is the center of everything he believes and understands about life and existence. Everything for Paul has to do with Jesus. Paul's emphasis is Jesus. It's, it's not secondary doctrines. Um, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is the center of Paul's life and everything he says and teaches uh, really stems from his understanding of Jesus. So the Christocenteredness of Paul is what I want you to think about as we listen to Paul sort of unpack the things that he's going to unpack. So verse 8, I'm going to read. We'll go down to about verse 12. So we won't cover that much today. And uh, we'll take a look at it. Verse 8 says, See to it 
that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in him, the wholeness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 14, in in him, sorry, in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul basically says in short here, He's concerned about the Colossian believers. Actually, he mentioned that in chapter 1. And what he's concerned about is them basically walking away from Christ. So take a look at the next slide. And I want you to just think about this. This is kind of how I worded this. Paul warns the Colossian believers, and us, obviously, uh, to not buy a counterfeit version of what they, and we, already possess in Christ. So there's that phrase, in Christ. So again, what Paul is saying is that he's, he's warning them, beware, be careful. Don't wander down this path. Temptation is that there are alternative paths. Next slide uh, is the way that I would kind of phrase it. Is that our temptation is to invest ourselves into people and things with the hope that they will provide some form of freedom or security or some form of an identity. So our temptation is to say we love Jesus, say we know Jesus, if you're a Christian, and yet feel like you need something more that will lead to security, more that will lead to freedom, more that will lead to a more defined identity. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 if you do that, your idea of adding to Christ is actually subtracting from the whole. Because if you somehow think that you can add more security to the security that has already been given to you in Christ, you're deluded. If you think somehow you can add to an identity that has already been purchased for you and given to you by grace in Christ, you're misguided. If you somehow think that by giving yourself, your soul, your heart, your mind, your will over to anything else that will somehow purchase you or give to you freedom, Paul says the problem is you will end up stuck, bound, trapped. One other thing I want to add is that what you need to understand is that Whenever we give ourselves over to something or anybody, like I said earlier, Paul is concerned that we don't buy for ourselves anything else that we've already been given. And the emphasis I want to point out there is the word buy. So so don't think that by giving yourself away to something else that there is no cost. You know, the reality is is that there is nothing free in this life. And I said this a couple weeks ago. So let's say, for example... Um, if you are somebody that desperately feels the need to be affirmed, right? Desperately needs to be affirmed. So you live your life maybe at a deficit. Maybe your dad didn't affirm you. Maybe your mom didn't affirm you. Maybe you kind of grew up with some of those psychological type baggage that you have in your life right now. But today, who you are as a human being, you look at yourself, you're like, I desperately need to be affirmed. I desperately need somebody to recognize me, to acknowledge me, to affirm me, to pat me on the back, to identify me for who I am. That if that becomes an ultimate desire in your life and that you begin to look for affirmation beyond Jesus in something else, you will end up paying a price to get that affirmation. So, for example, if you're a girl, you're female, and you desperately feel the need to be affirmed, your temptation perhaps is to try to find that affirmation from a guy. 
and you will pay a price. The price that you will pay will probably not be money necessarily, probably not. But it may be a paying a price of your purity or a conviction that you have to be pure. But you will actually pay by being defiled and soiled in your soul in exchange for the goods of affirmation. But in reality, by paying that price, you're not free, you're actually bound. You thought you were going to be free. You thought that was going to liberate you. You thought that by being in this relationship, you were going to somehow find freedom, find security, find affirmation. But in, in turn, instead, what's actually happened is now you're bound. Now you have a soul that feels filthy and soiled and dirty and defiled. So what Paul is saying is that what you need to know is that in Christ, you have security. You have a name. You have an identity. You have a hope. Don't sell yourself. Don't pay the price for all of these other counterfeits for what you've already been given. And so what Paul is going to do over the next few verses that we just read, he's going to begin to basically provide a pathway, an avenue, a hope, reminding them of what they have in Christ. Now I want to emphasize this real close, real, real carefully. That Paul's emphasis is to the believer. Uh, this is distinguished from who is someone who's not a believer, someone who does not trust Christ, who does not trust the reality of what Jesus has done. So this is not a universal statement that everybody has all of this. Well, Paul is, again, he's writing to Colossian believers. This is a church, it's a small gathering of people, perhaps gathered in a family room, in a living room, someone's house, and they're reading this letter, and then they would take this letter and then give it on to someone else, and then it would make its way 2,000 years later to us. So he's writing to Christians, to believers that already hold to, trust, believe in Jesus. And he's saying that in Christ, here's what you have. So don't look, don't settle, don't sell, don't give, don't buy, don't be tricked, don't be duped into giving yourself over to anything else that you already have been given in Christ. So Paul's going to point out basically three things. We'll look at them, first of which he's going to point out again because Paul's very Christocentric. Uh, we need to start with Jesus. And what Paul's going to do as we look at these three things, one, he's going to say and show us that Jesus actually provides freedom in the place of slavery. And then secondly, he's going to point out that Jesus provides completeness in the place of emptiness. And thirdly, we'll take a look at Jesus providing a lasting identity in the place of an earthly identity. So first of all, let's jump in, begin to take a look at Jesus providing freedom in the place of slavery. We've got to go back to verse 8 again, and here's what Paul says. I'm going to read this out of a uh, translation by a uh, uh, Christian scholar. Here's how he had worded this from the original Greek. He says this, watch out, it's the idea for beware, that nobody takes you captive. So Paul's concern, according to this uh, Greek scholar, is that what Paul's concerned about is that there are those that will come and will take you captive. In other words, you'll be bound. It's kind of a funny thing because in the church, there are those that are ultra-concerned about others being bound. And oftentimes, there's a tendency to think that uh, being bound, being taken captive, is exclusively relegated to the form of sin. You can be bound by sin. It's true. You can be bound by sin. Um, You can be bound by false religious claims and ideas or Eastern mystical teachings or practices. That's true as well. But I also think it's possible to be bound by... Uh, single item ideas that may be worthwhile addressing, but you're bound by or stuck in that particular uh, 
cul-de-sac, if you would, of ideas. For example, I know a friend that for some reason always just posts ideas combating one particular idea over and over and over again. It's a single string uh, announcement. There's not a lot of Jesus. There's not a lot of emphasis of the freedom of Christ. But there's a lot of emphasis upon this concern over this one particular issue in the church. So what I would say is that Paul's acid test or litmus test to basically define or describe what are the ways that we can look at to determine are we being bound, are we being stuck, are we being held captive by ideas, concepts uh, that can be actually taking us away from Christ. The way that this particular scholar finishes this particular verse is he says this, watch out that nobody takes you captive. There's a lot of so-called philosophy out there, hollow, empty trickery, human tradition, Uh, according to the elements of the world. And then he finishes with a statement. None of this is in line with the king. So the litmus test that we can basically use to determine, are we being bound, is by basically asking ourselves a question. If one of the ways in which we can beware of the things that are enslaving or empty or earthly is by asking ourselves this question. Does this thing in my life that I'm giving myself to have anything to do with being in line with King Jesus. He's the king. Jesus has come. He's established a new kingdom, a new reign, a new race, if you would, a new humanity. So I'll unpack that more in just a moment. And what Jesus comes to do is to bring us to to be in line with that, to walk in the freedom of Christ so that our hearts are liberated and free. What that means, it translates to into our lives in a broader sense. It means that we're free to love people. Rather than bound saying, I have to hate you because you don't believe the way that I believe. Or I have to distance myself from you because you are engaged in things that are, you know, sacrilegious to me. Ironically, the gospel says, because you are safe, because you are found, because you are secure in Christ, and nothing can rattle that foundation, even though you may be tempted and persuaded to fall prey to false ideas like what Paul's warning them, there is a security that's given to us in Christ, a wholeness, a freedom that's given to us in Christ that actually frees us, enables us to love people, to serve people, to give ourselves away to people that don't act like us, don't think like us, don't look like us. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel announcement is that God actually calls us, welcomes us, to his table. And ironically, at that table, everyone is treated with the same dignity, value, and respect. There's no favorites. It's not like because you're rich, because you have a very high income, because you wear nice clothes, you're going to be given the best seat at the table. And everybody else that doesn't dress nice or have a lot of money to their name or doesn't have a lot of fame or doesn't have a lot of fans following them on Facebook or A lot of fans follow them on their Instagram. You're not as great, not as cool, not as popular. You have to sit down at this lesser location. The gospel says all are welcomed in Christ. All are welcomed. This is beautiful. So that frees us as God's representatives, representing, which is what a representative is, representing the love of God through our lives to other people. Loving, inviting, welcoming, serving, honoring, valuing, other people in spite of false ideas, concepts that they might carry. That doesn't mean we buy into them. It means we carefully navigate through them, and we do what Paul says. We recognize there are things that are enslaving, but everything gets 
placed, stacked against, measured by the litmus test of is this according or in line with the king. So think about it this way. Paul's going to go on in Colossians chapter 13 and 14. I'll just read this briefly because this will actually be unpacked a little bit more next week. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, again there's that phrase, with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses. So think about that for a second. What Paul is saying is that in Christ, God has done something for you that oftentimes we try hard to do ourselves. What God has done for you is he's canceled our sins. He has washed away our sins. He's cleansed us. One of the reasons oftentimes why we get ourselves enslaved or bound is because we recognize, we're aware of the fact that something's not right within our soul. Something's not right within our heart. Uh, We feel filthy. We feel dirty. And it's one of the things that oftentimes happens is that in our lives, when we take matters in our own hands to somehow secure our own identity or secure our own security, if you would, or to somehow create some form of freedom within our lives, we begin to realize that we are actually making choices and decisions that are not leading to our freedom, but are actually leading to our enslavement. And then we make secondary choices within those circumstances, within the context, that might lead to the defilement of our soul, the brokenness, the breakdown of our soul. And that defilement leads to other secondary, third types reactions where, you know, let's say we, you know, now we feel so filthy because we made some decisions that we went against, we violated our morals, you know, we did something that defiled my soul. Now I feel really filthy and really bad about myself, so i got to medicate myself. Drinking, alcohol, getting drugs, doing whatever types of things that somehow to medicate yourself, to numb the pain, the hurt, the sorrow. In reality, it's really an attempt to cover up your nakedness. It leads, contributes to, adds to what the Bible describes as defilement. We're defiled. We know it. But do you hear what Paul says? Listen to it again, verse 13. He says, In you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. What you need to know is that you in Christ are totally washed, cleansed, forgiven, pure. You're not defiled. You're not soiled. You're not gross. Whatever type of word you would use to describe or characterize or envision yourself to be because of what you've done. It's one of the reasons why Paul is saying that in Christ, this is what has been given to us freely. And what Paul is saying is that this is actually liberating to your soul. It frees you. Think about it this way. How much of our life and how much of our time and how much of our energy is oftentimes used to cover up, to protect, to cover our tracks, to cleanse ourselves, to purify ourselves, to be able to receive the cleansing that comes from Jesus as a gift from him because he loves us, liberates us, frees us. And this is what he's basically trying to unpack for us. And he finishes with a statement. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, there's that phrase, in him. Again, what Paul is saying is that there is no other authority higher than the authority of Jesus. And if you submit yourself to the authority of King Jesus, 
you have the highest authority over you. And here's a good thing. As a master, you will never get any better master than King Jesus. Because unlike other masters that may use you at their expense, that may, uh, may use you at your expense in order for their advance, to take advantage of you, to milk you, to take from you, to borrow from you, to never to really pay back or to give back, Jesus doesn't do that. He gives to you at great expense to himself. It doesn't mean that there's not a cross that we may need to carry. It doesn't mean that there are not decisions we need to make that may feel painful in the moment. Jesus says, the disciple is one who takes up the cross, follows me. There is a death, what feels like a death. But really what Paul is saying is, believers, if you're a Christian, don't settle for lesser weightless joys when right in front of you is the most eternal weighty joy that can ever be imagined or envisioned in Christ you stand free that's exceptionally good news it's freeing it's liberating any breaking bad fans here okay that's awesome so tonight, obviously, if you guys you don't know what Breaking Bad is, I'll tell you. Uh, basically, in short, um, it's kind of an interesting story because it, in a lot of ways, plays into this. Breaking Bad is a story. It's going to be kind of premiering or starting back up tonight. It's a story of a guy. Uh, his name is Walt, and he basically was a chemistry teacher. He got a illness, thought he was going to die or kind of in the process of dying. He's got a son that needs special help and his wife, he was concerned about the fact that he wasn't going to be able to pay the bill. So he's trying to look for alternative ways to make a lot of money. Knowing he's going to die, I uh, want to take care of his family. And what happens is you basically watch throughout the season of this show playing out is sort of this slow, gradual uh, transformation from being this guy that's sort of uh, a chemistry teacher to turned to this uh, meth kingpin. Because he's, as a chemistry teacher, begins to realize he can create the best, purest meth. And what happens is, you can imagine the storyline, he becomes brought into kind of this underworld that he never really expected. But what's ironic about the story is this, is for him, uh, what starts out as merely survival. He gets involved not because he wants to, like, slay or murder people, not because he wants to rule the world, not because he wants to, you know, be this kingpin of drugs, but because of survival. He just wants to have money to give on to his kids. It's pure, it's... It's authentic, it's genuine, he just has a heart for his kids. As he begins to progress in the storyline, what ends up happening, things move on where he begins to want to impress others. So it all becomes about him wanting to impress other people. You know, imagine, here's a, you know, a, a chemistry teacher that doesn't get the type of recognition that a chemistry teacher should, right? All right if you're a teacher, uh, there's, there's two jobs in the world that you rarely get the recognition you deserve, all right? Teachers and parents, all right? More particularly, moms, all right? Moms, you don't get the recognition you deserve. Oftentimes, you get a lot of flack and people that are not thankful. Um, but the reality is teachers and moms and parents don't get the recognition they deserve. So in him, in his mind, he just wants the recognition. So things kind of evolve gradually into him wanting to impress others. Then he begins to realize he's so good. Now it turns into him wanting to spite others that had stood opposed to him. He wants to spite them. Now, as the story continues to progress, he becomes basically this ruler over others. He's God, so to speak. He's a king, so to speak. He's a ruler, and he, you see sort of this constant, ongoing degradation of his soul. In short, it's one of the most classic depictions of slavery. And all of us are subject to it. 
Because every single decision he makes are decisions that you and I are tempted to make every single day of our lives. And it always leads to the same place, enslavement. Starts out as a subtle promise, provided for family. Your life will be better. You'll have security. You'll be free. It leads in enslavement. And what the gospel promises through Jesus is that Jesus provides freedom instead of slavery. And Paul's warning is this, be careful, be aware, don't buy an alternative or a counterfeit or fabricated freedom at great cost to your own soul when Jesus has given it to you freely. Second thing that Paul's going to point out is he says that Jesus provides completeness instead of emptiness. Provides completeness instead of emptiness. In verse 9, Paul says this. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Just prior to that, in verse 8, again, Paul says, watch out that nobody takes you captive. Uh, There is a lot of so-called philosophy out there. Hollow, empty trickery. Um, He says, human tradition according to the elements of the world. But what Paul says is that there is a so-called philosophy. Now, kind of, some scholars have kind of led, and I remember as a young Christian thinking, oh, philosophy, like you should never read philosophy. It's a bad thing. It's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, okay, let me put it this way. Paul is not saying don't read Plato or Aristotle because they're wicked. All right, that's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul was very familiar with Plato and Aristotle. He was trained in Greek culture and thought and idea, but he would also recognize that there are, that, that was a, it was a general term that Paul was using, it could have been used to identify Plato and Aristotle, but it was broad. It was this idea that um, the word that he was using there is that it would enslave and entrap, and it was a big, broad word that described all sorts of ideas. It could have been a philosophy that came from um, the, the Jewish synagogues. It was philosophy that could have come from off the street. It was philosophy that just came from natural, the default mode of our hearts. Paul is just saying, again, any philosophy, any idea, any teaching, any thought, any concept, that's not in line with King Jesus. Promises a lot, but delivers little. So here's what Paul is, I think, trying to point out, is that at the end of the day, he says that it's hollow. It's empty. It's, uh, it's lifeless. It's lightweight. It's insignificant. It's non-weighty. And again, Paul is not just simply saying, hey, stop doing this as a simple rule in of itself. The reason why Paul is saying stop doing this is because you're undermining the fact that you've been given something of substance already. Why why acting as if you've not been given something of substance? Are you going to settle for something of lesser substance? Paul's saying it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's hollow. It rings hollow. It's trickery. It's, it doesn't uh, satisfy. It doesn't help you. It doesn't uh, bring about a sense of life that God intends for it. So again, what Paul basically says in replacement of it by way of reminder uh, is to say, look, don't simply settle for something that's empty. Turn to Jesus who is full. And here's how he describes this and words this in verse 9 and 10. He says, for in him, it's Christ. There's that phrase again, in him. The whole fullness of the deity dwells. What Paul is saying in short is that in Jesus, in Christ, Yahweh, God, exists. It's not that Jesus was a little God. It's not that Jesus was sort of God. And when I say little God, meaning like like 80% God as opposed to his miniature God. Uh, I I mean like Jesus wasn't just simply a good man who possessed 
elements of God or God-likeness. But Paul is saying that Jesus in the flesh is the God-man. Uh, as Augustine said, that uh, God added to his divinity humanity, not added to his humanity divinity. It wasn't that Jesus came to this earth as a really good, gifted, unique man and then became God by way of good action in God's favor, but that God came into this world through the person of Jesus, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that everything that God is was somehow in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. But he gets even more specific in verse 10. He says, and you have been filled. You have been filled with him. This is absolutely mind-blowing because what Paul's going to go on to say is that Christ is full of all of the glory. Now, the word glory, the beauty, the goodness, the greatness of God, he's already kind of touching us. The word glory comes from the Old Testament word glory. It can be translated or transliterated from the Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word kabod, which can also mean the weightiness, the substance. So think of something that is unbelievably full of substance. It's substantial. It has volume. It has weight. Essence. This is who God is. And the flip side of that, or the opposite, is something that's non-substantial, that's, that's, weight, that's, that's weightless, or that doesn't have any volume, that's, that's uh, lightweight. What Paul is saying is be careful not to sell yourself, to be careful not to give yourself away for little trinkets that are lightweight. They don't satisfy when you've been given something of such unbelievable volume and weightiness. In Christ. We live in a culture that trivializes everything. I think personally it's one of the problems with the modern technological society. Information age. Is that we have so much information at our fingertips. Um, if you're like me, I'm, a, I'm an absolute news junkie. I love just reading news. Headlines. Uh, so much so that my, my wife kind of finally got tired. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, what war in the Middle East? I'm like, look, you, you got to know about what's going on. And so she got her own like little news app. And so I'm making disciples of my own family about news and stuff like that. The, the problem is that we can become so inundated with information and news that things become non-substantive. We can hear about a death in the Middle East or hear about, you know, uh, some form of a, a, a storm that takes out hundreds of people. We just read that as a headline. It doesn't in no way move us because it's just another headline. It's just information. It's trivial information. And we are in danger of doing that with the gospel. In exchange for things that are bright and shiny and glistening and 2.0 and 3.0 and upgrades here and updates here. Let me give you an example. How many of you have some form of like a smartphone? And at some point you kind of go throughout, throughout the day, throughout the week where you're just like, I need a new app. Because none of the apps on my phone are satisfying me right now. I'm not happy with what I have. I need another app. So you like spend time and moments, you know, looking for something else that will actually bring some form of satisfaction or wholeness in your life. And you find it. And it only satisfies me for like 12 hours. You're like, I need another one. 99 cents here, another one. You know, it, it, it never really satisfies. Because what we're trying to do, we're satisfying ourselves with little trinkets. And Paul is saying, don't do that. That costs you a lot, and it never delivers. When Jesus offers you himself, and in him dwells the fullness of God bodily, 
in you dwells Christ, which means in you is a temple. You are a temple of the living God. The fullness, the power, the glory, the weightiness of God is inside you. That's what Paul's saying. Third thing I want to finish here is that he says that Jesus provides a lasting identity in the place of an earthly one. And what Paul's going to point out again in verse 8, going back to there, kind of anchoring in that verse and sort of stemming out from there, Paul says here, he says again, watch out that nobody takes you captive. There's a lot of so-called philosophy out there, hollow, empty trickery. And then he says, human tradition according to the elements of the world. None of it is in line with the king. And this little phrase, this last phrase, which says human elements of uh, the world, or according to the elements of the world. Some of your translations might vary on that. Um, but the idea, and again, a lot of scholars kind of debate over exactly what this means, and there's all sorts of ideas. Some of them are kind of corny and funky. Um, some of them, I think, really what he's really trying to say is, at, at the end of the day, really, we uh, are, as human beings, are sort of anchored to our humanity. We are stuck, in a sense, in this world. And the default mode of our heart is human default mode. Fallen human default mode. So in other words, what we think that actually might be leading towards our acceptance by other people or moving to greater life or freedom or security, uh, we are actually acting upon uh, certain instructions that are sort of instinctive to our life. But Paul's saying that to live according to those instinctive behaviors within your life, within your heart, an unregenerate and a fallen or broken heart will actually lead to brokenness. Let me put it to you another way. The Bible basically describes two types of people, two races of people on planet Earth. All right, if I can try to put it this way. The first race are those that are born from their father, Adam. Paul says you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You want to think of it this way, if you were on a team. Every team, good team, has a captain. Captain Humanity has Captain Adam as the team captain. The way that you get into Captain Humanity with Captain Adam as the team captain, is all you got to do, are you ready for this? Be born. That's it. All right? If, if you have a pulse, you're in that team by default. All right? You didn't ask to be in there. You just were born in there. That's it. There's another team, another family, another tribe, and the captain of that team, of that tribe, is King Jesus. He birth brought into light a brand new humanity. Uh, Paul's words, Paul's terminology would be, we are either in Adam or in Christ. We are in Adam by natural birth. We are in Christ by supernatural birth, being born again. In Adam, we lead to death. The path in Adam always leads to death. In Christ, the path always leads to life. In Adam, the path always leads to defilement, to brokenness, to being soiled within our soul. In Christ, leads to clean, cleanness, being washed, being purified, given life. So the point that Paul is really trying to emphasize is what family do you belong to? This whole idea, to some degree, can be summarized like this. If you belong to the family of Jesus, I'll read it to you. Why don't you look real quickly at Galatians chapter 2 verse, or Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul's going to say this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, so again, he's talking to Christians. He's saying not maybe if you die to the elemental spirits. Uh, which is another interesting layer to this because the word spirits can oftentimes imply that there are, there are spiritual beings or demonic entities that, in other words, this world is not just simply strictly materialistic, that behind the material world is a spirit world. 
You know, this kind of might sound a little bit weird if you're from a materialistic background, which you, know, you might be here, and maybe you're not a Christian, we're happy you're here, but the reality is the Bible describes that there is a spiritual world uh, parallel within operating simultaneously with this material world that we live in. And Paul's saying is that uh, really if you're a Christian, what's happened is that you have uh, been brought out of this elemental world. And he says, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to the regulations? I'm not going to unpack the rest of that. But his whole point is he's making an appeal that if you're a Christian, he's saying, look, you might live in this physical world, this reality, this elemental world around you. But something has happened. You're in a new family. You're in a new humanity. And the reason why you're in that new humanity is because something happened to pull you out of the humanity that is broken and defiled that will lead to death. And here's what Paul's going to tell. In verse 11 and 12, he finishes it by a handful of examples. I'm going to read through it. It might sound like a very long run on sentence with a lot of big terms that you might not identify or understand immediately, but I'm going to come back and hopefully unpack those for you real quickly so you can just sort of uh, catch the flavor of what I think he's saying. So he's going to say this. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So again, in him, reference to Christ, in Christ, You've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not the typical circumcision that you would find in the Old Testament. Uh, He says, uh, but the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12 is going to change analogies. Ready for this? So he's going to shift from circumcision to another picture. Here's what he says. Having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised in him, Jesus, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul finished with three big words, or Paul used three big concepts and ideas here that I want to emphasize. First of all, it's circumcision. Second, baptism. Third, resurrection. Circumcision basically is an Old Testament description of how one would become a part of the family, uh, really in the tradition. You would basically become part of the Jewish family, part of the Jewish table, by entering into the rite of circumcision. You would go through the process of circumcision. Right, so if you were a Gentile, you wanted to worship the living God, typically what would happen is that you would then go through the process of being circumcised. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack a lot of this, but in the New Testament, this became an issue or an object of question since there was a lot of Gentiles entering into this new humanity, this new church that was formed. The question of circumcision was constantly on the chopping block, no pun intended. Um, What are we going to do with circumcision? Like, how are we going to deal with this thing? All right? because we have a lot of these like Gentile people that are coming in, should we circumcise them all? All right? Thank Jesus. Thank Jesus. They said no. Every dude in here should be like, yes. Because it'd be really weird if, it's, if they said no. Because what we would have to do as a church then, we'd be like, look, if you want to follow Jesus right now, I'm going to call you to come forward, not to pray a prayer, but to get circumcised. Ready, set, go. All right? That would be horrible, painful. But the reality is circumcision in a lot of believers' minds in the New Testament was basically replaced or subsumed or overcome by the New Testament understanding of baptism. Baptism is a way of initiation. It's a way of recognition. You are now part of a new family. You are done with the old family. You've been brought into a new family. And then finally, the concept of resurrection. That Jesus died as a man, as the God-man. But death was not the final authority over Jesus. Praise God. That by Jesus rising again from the dead, it was his statement, his 
declaration, his challenge to death itself, that nothing can hold God down. Nothing can fight back. Nothing can resist the power of God at work through Jesus, released by the Spirit upon his church to live the life of God. And that power is at work in you if you believe in Christ. Paul would say, why turn to cheap knockoffs and counterfeits? This power to bring you into a new family, a new humanity is at work in you. Why live in such a way that you try to sell yourself cheap for a place of belonging? when you've been given a seat at the table of the king. Most of our lives are lived in a way and by an attempt to somehow carve out a place of acceptance. This is really good news, because let's say if you were the person that in you know, fifth grade, you were never picked to join the team, right? Uh, at the end of the dodgeball picks, you were like, last person there standing and it was between you and a post and they're like pick the post like you were not the one that was selected to yeah go to the dance like you were waiting for someone to ask you you never got asked to go to the dance you were hoping to like you know win some sort of lottery you never won the lottery you never got selected you never got picked you never got called on i remember as a kid uh the teacher oftentimes would like you know, pick the hands of kids and be like, now let's hear the unique or, or the exciting, you know, response or answer from so-and-so. And then every time I'd raise my hand, he'd be like, okay, and let's hear from what Brian has to say. And I was always like cross. I'm like, I want him to find me unique. I want him to find me not, you know, good and interesting and smart. But there's that sense where we oftentimes kind of feel we're trying so hard to fit in, trying so hard to find a place of belonging. And what Paul's saying is that in Christ, You've been given a new identity. Your identity is not tethered to, not tied to what you do. It's not tied to your vocation. It's not tied to the sin that you've committed. It's not tied to the sin that's been committed against you. This is absolutely freeing. Because for some of us, we live our lives thinking that our identity is the fact that we've been sinned against. Our identity is the fact of the, what we've done in terms of sin. Our identity is who we are as a mom or a dad. Or our identity is just simply reduced to being nothing more than a dude working behind a phone, answering phone calls and dealing with cranky customers all day long. Their identity are all these other things. And the problem is, is the moment our identity that's tethered to that particular thing gets cut off, then we lose our identity. Look, if you're married, that might describe what you do. It doesn't describe who you are. If you've been sinned against, that might describe something about you. But it doesn't describe who you are. You are either from the family of Adam or from the family of Jesus. And what Paul is saying very clearly, if you're in Christ, do you understand the depth a belonging that has been offered to you in Christ. You are not a stranger at the table. There's a place for you. No matter how soiled or defiled you once were, no matter what types of sins you may have felt defined you before, that does not define you now in his presence, you are accepted, Paul would say later, in him. In 
Christ. That's who you are. Paul's point, don't settle. Don't sell. Don't buy a cheap counterfeit when Christ has offered to you all of this. So the question has to be asked, and I'm done with this final thought. How do we know that what Christ has offered to us is good? How do we know that he would make good on what he's offered? Because look, at the end of the day, the reason why we know that we can ultimately have freedom instead of slavery, completeness instead of emptiness, a brand new everlasting identity rather than one that's tethered to our humanity, tethered to Adam, and ultimately one day will be consumed by the grave. It's because ultimately what we have in Christ is not simply a good advice, moral giving teacher that we try to somehow live according to his ethic. What we have in Christ is not us somehow ascending to God by doing good religious actions and duties and services and offering sacrifices. What we have in God is not us trying to climb some sort of moral religious ladder to get to God and present ourselves to God and beg for his mercy. What we have in Jesus is God come down that ladder, come down into our level, come down into our gutter, our projects, into our homes, into our lives, himself, to seek us out. He came into our brokenness, into our bondage, our enslavement, all of these things. And what's happened to Christ is that Jesus on the cross can give us freedom because he himself was enslaved, bound, fixed to the cross, not by nails, but as some have described, love. It was his love that held him there. Ultimately, what we see is that Jesus can provide completeness because he, in this life, emptied himself. And ultimately, what we see is that in Christ, he can give us an identity that lasts forever because he, in this life, was willing to lose his identity or more accurately to be numbered with the transgressors. That's a fancy way of saying he became identified as the worst sinner so that you and I, the worst sinners, can be identified as pure, clean, whole, undefiled sons and daughters. To the degree that you believe that, That will liberate you. It will set you free. For some of us, what we need to do is sit at the cross until our cynicism erodes. Sit at the cross until our hearts and the coldness of our hearts thaws out and our hearts become warm to worship him. God wants to change us from just merely being admirers of Jesus to being worshipers of him. And this is what the gospel announcement is all about. It's not a call to live according to the advice of the Bible. It's a call to recognize. It's an announcement that Christ has done something for us that you and I, in our own efforts, could never do. It was absolutely free to us, but at great cost. There's that word cost I said earlier. Everyone has to pay something. Every one of us pays something to get freedom, or what we think is freedom, or pay something to get what we think is going to help us or give us an identity. Well, Christ paid a price to get us all of that. It was at great cost, great expense to himself that he did this. Let that be what motivates 
challenges, transforms, changes, realigns the affections of your heart. I want to pray. The guys will come up. They'll lead in some songs of worship. I'm going to give us an opportunity. We have some rugs in front. If you want to just get down on your face before God and just deal with things between you and him, confess sin. We'll have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. Guys, look, at the end of the day, we believe God wants to set people free and heal us. And it might be freedom from our sin. It might be freedom from sickness. I mean, some of you may be believers and might be dealing with stuff. You might not even be a Christian. And you've got issues of sickness that you're battling. And it's consuming you. It's destroying you. That's simply your body. It's consuming your uh, emotions. You are full of fear. Anxieties are crushing you, oppressing you. Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to realign what you are afraid of rather than being afraid of something that can just simply take your body. See him for who he is as king of all kings. He has the power, as Jesus says, to cast both soul and body in hell. But he chooses not to because he himself was crushed and bruised and broken for us. So we don't have to be. So we can trust him. I'm going to pray. We'll partake of communion. Communion is a way of reminding us of what Jesus did. By way of partaking of bread, it's broken. It reminds us that Christ was broken for us. So you and I, who live our lives broken and crushed and disintegrated, can actually be given hope to be made whole. If you're a Christian, I encourage you to partake. Maybe even do it as a family. Do it as a small community group. Maybe do it as a row. It doesn't matter. I mean, figure out a way that you can maybe do it together. You can do it individually. That's fine. But the idea is that we're part of a family. We're part of a whole family, male, female, different shades of skin, different ethnicities, different opinions over, you know, politics, but in Christ, we're one. That's what the gospel welcomes us to, all in Christ. I'm going to pray, sing, confess sin. I want to invite you to worship King Jesus as a king, not just as a gifted communicator, not just as someone who has great techniques and abilities, great things to say, but as a king. Let's approach him as such. Jesus, thank you for who you are, and we want to approach you as a king with humble hearts, not somehow bringing a gift to impress you. God, we cannot impress you. But what brings great delight to you is when we receive what you've given to us. So by faith, God, now we want to receive your life, your love, your freedom, the identity that you give us in Christ. And let that begin to transform and change our hearts.